Well, good evening. I don't know for you if that's difficult to do when you meet people for a service or a gathering like this. I'm so used to meeting on Sunday mornings, and so I'm catching myself saying, good morning. I mean, it's evening. It's dark outside. And with that statement, I think it's safe to say, though, that mornings are probably not when you're your best self. Can I get an amen in the room? You wake up in the morning, maybe this morning, in fact, and this morning, your hair didn't look like the way it does right now. And you had some gunk in your eye, and you had things dried up on your face and on your pillow that you don't want anybody else to see, because it's the morning. That's how you wake up. And that is why I am convinced there are few better depictions in the world than of goodness, kindness, than breakfast in bed. Here's a picture of some breakfast in bed for you, right? That, because it, for breakfast in bed, if you've ever received this goodness, this kindness from someone, you have made all of zero actions that day. Anything productive, anything worthy of applause, you've just wiped the drool off your face, and you go from a laying down position to a, a whopping sitting down position, and someone puts a tray before you with a platter of delight. And when I say delight, I'm talking eggs cooked just like they always should be, over medium, and bacon, crispy, just right. And they've even got a fruit cup there for you because they're trying to remind you life is not just to be savored, it is to be enjoyed as sweet. And there's your favorite cup of coffee, and here you go for the morning. You see, there are few better examples than this. When you have done nothing to earn that goodness, nothing about your day has been pretty, and yet you have been granted, been gifted kindness. You see, this is what I would describe as grace. Grace is goodness or it's kindness that you had done nothing to earn, that you did nothing to deserve, and yet you were gifted it anyway. See, friends, this is grace. And this evening, we are actually going to spend time peering into the critical moments before the moment, the moment that we're all waiting for, the moment of Jesus' birth. And my hope is that tonight, as we dive into this text, you will have greater anticipation for the morning, that you will long for it in a way that you didn't before. And so let's go on this journey together, ultimately to find this out, that the grace of God, the grace of God, it turns our posture of fear into a proclamation of faith. It has the power to do that today, even for you. That the grace of God can turn your posture of fear into a proclamation of faith. Let's find out if that's actually possible for you and for me. Look in your Bibles or on the screen with me in verse 26 of Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I want to pause here. Mary has been given a hello, a greeting and a very particular descriptor, a moniker, and that is, oh, favored one. If we were to tease out the definition of that in the original language, it simply means you are the recipient of lots and lots of grace. That's what favored means. It said later on in the passage, well, you have found favor, Mary. This is, this is the main descriptor we get of Mary in this entire passage. She is filled with spilling out over with God's grace in her story, in her life. And yet what I want us to recognize together is that 
there are markers of grace that we can unpack here. But we have to spend some time to, to pick it apart, to understand how can we know that God's grace is alive and well, that it's descriptive, not just of Mary's life, but of yours. How can we identify together, ah, this is God's grace in my story, in my moment. I think there are a few markers for us to consider. And the first one is this. It's his pursuit of you. And it's his pursuit of you, not, not because of you, but in spite of you, in fact. His pursuit of you even in your lowly estate. Did you catch it in these verses early on? The angel comes, and he's got to go to a podunk town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, if you were there in that day and age, this is the town that you drive by quickly on the highway, and you know it's like, okay, we're about 30 minutes away from where we really want to be. That's Nazareth. It's a name that you only see on a highway because you never actually want to go there as your final destination. Not only that, Mary is given, again, little to no descriptions. What we know about her is that she's a virgin and betrothed to a man named Joseph, a poor carpenter. All that tells us is that Mary is young, likely a teenager at this time. And it's particularly contrasted to just verses earlier, we get a descriptor of her relative that we'll get to talk about later on, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is, is given the details of she is righteous and blameless before God. And then there's Mary. You see, there's this stark contrast that's building up for us, and it's to highlight this specific marker. God's grace is his pursuit of you, not because of you, not because of your resume. Mary didn't have one, but actually in spite of you, his his initiation of a conversation when you have nothing on your resume at all. That's God's grace. And it's exemplified here in Mary's story. And as it goes on, this archangel Gabriel is sent from God to Mary and essentially tells her, by the way, before your wedding day, you're going to conceive a child. Aren't you excited about that? This life-altering news he continues to, to expound upon it, and we see thereafter the next marker of God's grace in Mary's story and in ours. And that is that he is near us. He doesn't just initiate by speaking and breaking the silence. He actually wants to be near us. Look in your Bibles or on the screen with me in verse 34. Verse 34, it reads this. And Mary said to the angel, um, how? How will this be since I am a virgin? It's a fair question. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I want to pause here for a moment. These are such helpful words that if we had the time, we could totally unpack together. But just in short, I want to, I want to identify this together tonight. You want to know how I'm convinced that God's grace is his nearness to you, his longing to be with you, not just to serve you breakfast when you just wipe the drool off your face, but to actually want to nuzzle up right next to you. It's right here in these words. Mary asks, how? How is that possible? Can you give me like a scientific explanation of how this is going to go down? And the angel looks at her and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That is a word that is often used in the original language for a military attack. It's to overcome you. It's to sweep over you like an enemy army that has come and taken over all your land. It's going to feel like you're completely run over, but by the Holy Spirit. 
He will consume you. He will fill you. He will come upon you to that degree. But not only that, we see that the power of the Most High, the dunamis, the the dynamite power of God will overshadow you. That word overshadow is used just one other time in the entire gospel accounts. And that is to describe when Jesus and a few of his disciples go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Anybody remember what happens there? A bright cloud covers them, overshadows them. And and the father speaks and says, that's my boy. Listen to him. It's the recognition for everybody up there on the mountaintop that, that God is with us. He's near right now. He's covering us in the cloud just like he did in the Old Testament. He led us by the cloud to remind us that he's near. He's doing it again. And so this is... This is a word that's supposed to inspire not just the fact that Jesus went so far or God went so far as to grace you by speaking to you, by serving you with breakfast in bed, but that he actually wants to sit down right next to you too. He's not going anywhere. That's what Mary is receiving in this moment. And then furthermore, we see the final marker of God's grace on display in this passage. Look with me in verse 36. Immediately thereafter, the the angel says these words, And behold, Mary, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this feels the most relatable of a marker of grace, goodness and kindness that I did not earn and did not deserve. It is when God provides you with help, when he provides you with support. He surrounds you with the right person to be able to walk this hard road with you. Here is Mary, a teenage girl. Her life has been turned upside down by this news. She is about to have a child. She's about to conceive before she's married. This is groundbreaking stuff. And in her calculations, she's wondering, oh my word, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to convince people that this is actually what happened, that an angel from God told me all of this? And what does God provide in his grace to her? Support. Your relative, Elizabeth, she's already, she's already down the line. And, did you, and you knew this because you've been praying for her probably for your entire life. She was barren. She's beyond the age of having kids, and yet, miraculously, by God's power, pregnant. And so you can imagine for Mary, I get to walk with somebody who knows that, who knows what this feels like. God speaks, he pursues us, and he wants to nuzzle up next to us. He's with us, but not only that, in the, in the scope of it all, she's recognizing for the first time all of this is about to change her life, and yet she doesn't have to do it alone. And as she's been doing the calculations in her mind, she's forecasting that her son, Jesus, is about to have a really difficult life. People will mock him, insult him for being born out of wedlock all the days of his life. We see it throughout the gospel accounts. And it has to be some form of great kindness to Mary's soul that there will be another boy whose whole identity is wrapped up in making much of Jesus, to be wind in his sails. Like she has to be imagining for herself that my son is going to suffer because of this news, not just me, and yet now there is another child who will be wind in her son's sails. Can you, can you feel the weight of this? This is goodness, kindness, 
You see, this is the third marker of God's grace in Mary's life, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure you've experienced something like this in yours. When you've received support, a surrounding of the right person in your life. See, these are the three markers of favor. Favor that is unearned, unmerited, and undeserved. And let me tell you something. This breakfast in bed experience for Mary changes everything about her. It changes everything. But I want us to rewind the tape to to get a better picture as to, well, how did Mary initiate this process? Did she start off being so stellar, favored one, mother of God? Like, this this is weighty stuff. How did she start? Let's rewind the tape and go to verse 28. Because I want to highlight for us that that like us, like you, like me, she didn't start off with fireworks, excited for the journey that God had designed for her. In verse 28, so the angel comes to Mary and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Let me remind you, The angel hasn't said anything yet. All he said is, hello, favored one. That's all he said. He hasn't talked about the fact that she's about to conceive out of wedlock, that he's going to be the savior of the world, that he's going to come and rule a kingdom forevermore. Like He hasn't said any of that yet. And Mary immediately hearing hello from an angel is greatly troubled. This phrase is incredibly clunky in the original language. It's it's almost helpful to unpack the fact that it's, it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional for Mary. She is undone by this greeting. Just the hello. How can that be? How is she so distressed? How is, how is she freezing up immediately when it happens? And discerned implies that she is utterly and totally confused. She doesn't know what to make of this. She doesn't know what to do with her hands. You ever experience that moment of like, what do I, what do, I do with my hands in this moment? What do I say? as if a chill just shot down her spine the moment the angel said, hello. And I'm convinced it's, it's something like what I'm trying to instill into my 14-month-old son. And so here's a picture of Elijah. Maybe. There it is. That's my son. Elijah James is his name. And uh, as you can tell, we're trying to just like get him to sit, like stand still, smile, son. And he can't. He started walking a couple months ago, and he gets into everything. He's knocking everything down, putting everything into his mouth. He has new territory he's exploring at this stage. And so his favorite spot to run to is the bathroom. And he knows even when the toilet seat gets put down, in recognition that he's going to bring it, he just brings it on up, and he's just, like, eager to splash his old hands in the toilet. And so as you can imagine, for a parent, I'm like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. And so... So uh, when did I start this? A few months ago. So before any of this happened, you know, I'm, I'm meditating all of this, knowing it's going to happen. So I, I've been training my boy. When I say his name, first, middle, together, in this tone, like this, <clears throat> Elijah James, just like that, he has learned to stop dead in his tracks. It's amazing. And it's perfect for moments like right now where he's running to the toilet to go play splashing in the toilet water, right? Like Elijah James, and he stops dead in his tracks, and he slowly turns around, and he looks kind of like that, right? He's kind of like, because uh... he knows, he knows what his dad is 
saying just by those first two words, Elijah, James. He knows I'm in essence saying you stop doing what you want to do right now. And you start doing what I want you to do right now, which is get over here. Right? Like it's, it's, uh, I say all that to say this. I'm convinced Mary is experiencing something very similar to my son. She, all she's heard is greetings, hello, favored one. But something happens to her physically. She stops, dead in her tracks, because she knows biblically, historically, when God speaks, when he calls you to something, it is never a path of ease. It is never a path defined and marked by comfortability and more and more security. Am I right? It's oftentimes a path toward the opposite. More than anything, it's oftentimes God telling his people, stop doing that thing right now. Stop doing what you want to do and start doing what I want you to do, what I think is best for you. You see, this, this is the experience for Mary, and it strikes fear into her heart. She has plans for her life like anybody. She's betrothed to a man, and Joseph seems like a pretty nice guy. She just wants to live a simple life, be a good wife, be a good mom. This is in a way, unmantling all of that. All of her plans for life are about to be changed forever more because of one conversation, because of one hello, favored one. And yet, the story doesn't end there. Mary, Mary experiences something radical in her heart, something that shifts her view of life, of herself, of God himself, it changes everything from the inside out. All of a sudden, that chill down her spine becomes something else entirely, and we've already learned together as to what that is. But let's fast forward to, to Mary's response by the end of this passage in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Amazing. It's beautiful. But how did Mary get there? Do you recall? We just journeyed through the markers of God's grace, the, the implications of being, oh, favored one, right? God has made breakfast in bed for Mary. He's broke the silence and said, before you've done anything, before you've had a single good thing on your resume today, I, want, I have something to say to you. I'm going to initiate the conversation with you, Mary. I'm pursuing you. And then he promises her, right? I'm not just here to speak a hard word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get right in there in between the sheets. I'm gonna sit right next to you and talk with you over breakfast. I'm here to be with you, to be near to you. I'm gonna cover you. My spirit is gonna fill you. My power is gonna overwhelm the system here. Don't worry, I'm for you, I'm near you, I'm with you. And not only that, remember, I, I've invited a friend to this breakfast in bed. The person you need along this journey, Elizabeth. And so I just want us to, I want us to recognize together that when God calls, when he invites you, it is not separated from his grace for you, his pursuit of you in spite of you, his, his nearness to you because he loves you, and his support of you by surrounding you with the right people that you need. And what happens to Mary is profound because of it. 
she takes, she goes from a, a posture of fear toward God, and it shifts radically for her to for her to look back at the angel and say, Behold, I am yours, God. I'm your servant. I'm totally yours. She went from greatly troubled just a few verses ago to I am yours. And then she utters a very important phrase. Let it be to me according to your word. Now that phrase, uh, it might be more familiar to you said a different way. She in essence says, not my will, God. Not my will. Not my wants, not my plans, not my desires, not my will, but your will be done, God. That is in essence what Mary says, is it not? Let it be to me according to your word, God. Let your will be done in my life. And don't you love the fact that on Christmas Eve, we get to see together that this is the, this is the statement, this is the declaration of faith, this is the refrain that bookends Jesus' life. Consider with me for a second. The moments, the critical moments where Jesus is born, what does Jesus' mom say? Not my will, but yours, yours, your will be done, God. And then we fast forward just before the end of Jesus' life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Anybody know what he says in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. And go there to that garden with me, right? Jesus has, Jesus has taken on flesh 2,000 years ago. He went from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt, he breathed this air. He walked this earth. He lived it perfectly. He amassed or earned every accolade that could be out there. He deserved every honor. Am I right? And then he reaches the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in that space, he cries aloud to his father, if there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Please do anything else. I don't want this to happen anymore. If there's any other way, God, please take this cup from me. And what does Jesus get in that moment from his father? Silence, not pursuit. He's so distressed, he's so troubled that he is sweating blood. And does he get God's nearness? Does he get a cloud that overshadows him in this moment? No. The father does not come and nuzzle up next to him. And he had asked his friends, his disciples, right? Pray for me. I need your support right now. In this moment, my heart is weary. I am anxiety-ridden. I need your support. Will you please pray? And what are his disciples doing just to rock throws away? They're asleep. They can't even stay up one night to pray for the man. And in just a few moments, he's about to be betrayed by one of his own friends, one of his own disciples by a kiss. Roman guards will come, and then those very friends that were supposed to be praying for him, they scatter to the winds. He gets abandoned. He gets deserted by those he spent the most time loving and investing in. You see, Jesus didn't get surrounded. He didn't get support. And all of that tells us one thing today. That in the garden and on the cross, Jesus got what you deserved. Jesus got what you deserved in the garden and on the cross so that you might get what he deserved. That's grace. Do you feel the implications of this moment for me? That Jesus earned it. If there was anybody in the world that, that, that deserved 
goodness and kindness? Was it not Jesus? Was it not him? And he did not get what he deserved so that you and I might get what he deserved. You see, this is what we get to celebrate tonight, tomorrow, and every day of our lives. That there is a refrain, a bold and courageous proclamation of faith. Not my will, but your will be done. It bookends Jesus' life. You see, it's the refrain that helped bring Jesus as a baby into this world, and it's the very refrain that helped and supported Jesus to endure the cross for the world. This phrase, this refrain, this is what I'm inviting you to tonight, and when you wake up with drool on your face tomorrow, to rehearse, to remember, to sing aloud even over your life, that his will be done, and his will, friends, is what is best for you. Isn't it proof? His will was to bring Jesus into this world, what we get to celebrate tomorrow morning. It was his will that Jesus would live the perfect life for you in your stead. It was his will that he would die on a tree for you in your stead. You see, that is God's will, and that is what is best, is it not? And so will you be an individual, whether it's for the first time tonight or for the thousandth time, will you remember the refrain that bookends Jesus' life? And will you rehearse it over your own story? God has been good to you. God has been kind to you. His grace is spilling out over you, favored ones. And it's because Jesus has come for you. And it's because he was willing to utter the phrase, both in before his days from his mother and at the end of his days, not my will, but your will be done. Let it be our refrain too. Let us believe that 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 is where grace is truly unlocked for us in ways that we've never experienced it before. So let's celebrate, friends, in that way. In spite of your fear, in spite of your self-preserving nature, concerned about what receiving a call from God like that might feel like, might look like, let us believe that it is best and look to Jesus as proof that it is. Amen? Will you bow your heads with me? So Jesus, I am grateful even now, tonight, that you are on the throne in your rightful place. And yet I am amazed all over again that you would leave heaven's heights to come for us in our lowly state. God, you pursued us. You loved me unconditionally. And when I deserved everything else, God, you, you took it instead. And so, Jesus, I'm here to say that I am, I am thankful for you, and I could spend my entire life, all of eternity, trying to tell you how grateful I am, and it would fail to amount to just how much. God, you are wonderful. You are beautiful. And so, Father, I just pray that you would grant to me the sort of boldness, the sort of courage it takes to proclaim that statement over all my days. Not what I want, God not what I've planned, not even what I desire. Not my will, but your will be done. God, help me be a person tonight, tomorrow especially, and all my days, be able to speak that, rehearse that. God, I want to experience you in ways that, that Jesus got to, to trust you this much. And so, Father, I just pray that tonight would be one where we get an inch closer to that. 
We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your holy and matchless name we pray.